0: Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice podcast for healthcare professionals, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant eMental Health tools and programs that can assist you in providing care. I'm Phoebe Holdenson-Kamira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, their elders past, present, and emerging. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 64 on the topic of living well with ADHD. We had three fantastic panelists with us. Dr. Sarah Barker is a clinical psychologist working in private practice with adult ADHD, and she also works as a health professional educator for the Black Dog Institute. Dr. Wee Sien-Woon is a GP in Canberra and a clinical editor for Health Pathways and he undertook a Churchill Fellowship this year to explore models of care for adult ADHD to increase accessibility for diagnosis and management. Dr. Sarah Sibson is a GP in Adelaide working in the adult ADHD space as a health professional educator, and she also has lived experience of ADHD. In this podcast, we discuss what it looks like to implement neuroaffirming practices and approaches when working with ADHD adults, outline strengths and potential challenges in adult ADHD, talk about potential approaches and strategies for organization, memory, stimulation, and sleep. We also talk about some e-mental health tools and resources for adult ADHD. We have a special bonus episode we've prepared for you where Wee shares his findings on different models of care for ADHD worldwide, which you can listen to after this episode. Just a quick note to say that we've focused on discussing adult ADHD and that some of the strategies we discuss may be relevant for children and adolescents with ADHD. Also, we did not focus on discussing medication for ADHD today given the broad audience of this series and that many of us are not prescribers. Given that most Australians need to wait quite a while to be assessed with ADHD in Australia, we thought it would be good to focus on non-prescribing approaches that we can all be discussing with our patients and clients. But please don't interpret this to mean that we don't think medication is important. Medication is important and beneficial for many people living with adult ADHD. I guess before we start talking, I think it's helpful just to quickly set the scene uh, so that everybody understands the language that we're going to be using in the rest of this webinar. So Sarah S, could you just talk us through um, the sort of language that's helpful when we're talking about ADHD?
1: The term that is used most commonly that people are probably familiar with is neurodiversity. And as far as defining that word, uh, we look at uh, kind of a similar concept of something like biodiversity. So um, in that instance, it's the full range of biology uh, in an ecosystem or in a particular setting. And that's exactly the way it is being translated across to this space of neurodiversity. So it is the natural variance of all of the types of brains that happen in our population. And when we talk about neurotypical, that is in reference to a type of brain that uh, functions and works in line with the general expectations of um, kind of the most common approach to um, life as far as thinking, learning, behaving, feeling, etc. cetera. Um, it doesn't mean that it is normal, which is why we haven't used that word, um, because Uh, based on the neurodiversity concept, they're all normal, Uh, but it's just the most common. So that's what neurotypical is in reference to. And neurodivergent is describing a brain that varies from that most common um, type of brain. And it functions differently in a wide variety of possible ways. And there are a number of um, other labels that kind of fall under that umbrella, which we will not really have time to talk about all the nuance of that tonight. Um, But just to give common examples of neurodivergent brain types, ADHD is one, um, autistic brains are another, and there's a very long list of uh, other learning uh, difficulties, you know, other mental health uh, struggles that also fall under that umbrella. So this all came about based on a movement, and it was to try and shift our paradigm uh, from the kind of disease state model and the deficit model towards something that is more supportive of the people that we're seeing and working with and instead focusing on strengths and um, people's capability and their capacity for doing wonderful things. So that is exactly what a neurodiversity affirming or a neuroinclusive Healthcare is all about. So, focusing on the strengths of the individual, no matter what their brain type is, whether it's neurotypical or neurodivergent, and seeing and valuing the benefits that that brain and that person who owns that brain uh, brings to our society. And the other component of that, which is key, is uh, recognizing that the individual sitting in front of you is the expert on themselves. So we're giving back that agency and autonomy to the people in front of us, um, particularly in the neurodiversity space. And this last point is something important, just to bring up um, the concept of how we talk about the ADHD individuals that we're seeing. and. There's um, a bit of discussion back and forth within the ADHD community about uh, which type of language is preferred. So I know in my own experience and a lot of the circles that I move in as an -er, ADHDer, we prefer the identity first language. That means an ADHD adult, -er, ADHDer, that centers that brain type as part of someone's identity, someone's um, personhood that can't be removed. And the other way that you may see it talked about is um, the person first language. So an adult with ADHD, there are still some people um, that prefer that language. So instead of um, getting too bent out of shape about which one is right, uh, probably best just to ask the person in front of you and see what they prefer.
0: Um, all right. So now, um, Sarah B, I know that many of us are quite familiar with the definition of ADHD, but just as a reminder, would you mind just quickly talking us? Through? Sure, sure. So one of the first things
2: I think is that it's um, it's an ongoing um, condition. Uh, it's neurodi neurodevelopmental, and it really runs in families. Um, often, yeah, there's a, a line of it, even if it's been undiagnosed in people, but there's often a really strong um, genetic component to it too, and, and inheritability. Um, the things that the diagnostic criteria point out most are patterns of either inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity. So it can be both together, just the um, attentiveness or the hyperactivity Um, impulsivity. They're the things the diagnostic criteria pull out as the most important. However, I suppose um, in my experience of ADHD, it has a range of other things that are really um, fundamental to it as well. Particularly, it uh, affects self-regulation, so people's energy, behaviour, thoughts, um, impulses, um, emotional responses as well. And then the other key aspect, which is very connected to Um, Self-regulation is executive functioning, Um, so memory, um, time, time blindness can often be uh, really, really common. uh, the capacity to move from an activity to an activity, um, being able to prioritise competing demands, that can be really, really challenging, um, and an incredible ability to hyperfocus and and to really um, thrive and enjoy on enjoy interests deeply and to go deeply into interests. Um, but it can be hard to move out of those as well for people. Um, mm-hmm. So the current diagnostic standard in Australia tends to be DSM five. So that's what we typically use. And just about persistent patterns, they've been there since childhood. So they're not something that um, you know comes up at a certain point in life. They've they've always been there. They might they might often not have been noticed or picked up by adults in the child's life, but they've always been there.
0: Beautiful. Thanks, Sarah B. Um, so uh, I know that uh, many decades ago it was believed that ADHD was a condition that affected children, that children grew out of, and our understanding has changed a lot recently in the sense that we know, as you said, that it's neurodevelopmental, it's persistent, and so you don't turn 18 and suddenly uh, stop having these challenges. Uh, and- um, so obviously our understanding of prevalence um, of ADHD is, is shifting as well. Um, Sarah B, could you talk to us about what we know about the prevalence of ADHD in Australia?
2: Thanks, Phoebe. Sure. So it's um, certainly the most common neurodevelopmental neurodevelopmental condition in um, children and adolescents and it's also one of the most common um, adult conditions and I suppose in the adults like we've talked about sometimes um, people have developed strategies to manage and approaches of um, doing things that have worked for them but changes to environment can mean that it might be expressed more in adulthood um, but not have been picked up. So in Australia we know about one in 20 people who um, Uh, ADHD is, we know that between six and ten percent. Of children and teenagers, depending on the research you look at, um, have a diagnosis of ADHD and that it is more common in boys. I wonder if it's picked up more in boys and noticed more in boys, but um, yeah, we'll we'll see in time, I suppose. It affects about two to six percent of adults and we tend to have a higher representation, again, of males compared to females. But again, I wonder if that's what we're noticing and what's coming to attention. I suspect that it's, um, yeah, we've got lots of ADHD um, adults, females as well.
0: And globally, between 2 and 5% of people have ADHD. Yeah. Uh, so you've alluded there to the idea of um, underdiagnosis, uh, mm. and I think um, all of us uh, in clinical practice have noticed a real shift um, and um, increase in the number of patients presenting over the last, say, two to three years. Um, adults who are saying, Oh gosh, I think some of these challenges I've been experiencing all along uh, might be related to ADHD. Um, so we're seeing those trends. What are the sorts of things that might prompt an adult to seek a diagnosis? We see, and could you share what you've been noticing in your work?
3: Yeah, I think so. Working as a GP, one group that I've um, that I frequently come across is parents of children um, who are ADHDers. Um, who've been recently diagnosed and the parents recognise similar traits or features of themselves and their children um, who are ADHDs, and that prompts them to mention that to me. Um, and I think, you know, it's never too late to be diagnosed as well. I, I had a 71-year-old uh, woman who I met in Ireland on my fellowship and she was diagnosed because her grandson was diagnosed. I think it's a really validating um, for her to receive that diagnosis and explain some of the um, challenges that she experienced throughout her life. Um, another group that I'm encountering is um, women, particularly young women who have recognised from media and social media about some of the other ways ADHD can present, such as having predominantly inattentive symptoms rather than the hyperactive and impulsive symptoms. Um, I see a lot of people from the LGBTIQ plus community, particularly trans and gender diverse people, and um, they're coming in for assessment when there's a high prevalence in that particular um, group of people. And I think when people have a transition in their life or um, a major kind of life event, for example, having children or, um, you know, moving, you know, going to an unsupported um, environment, you know, so, such as, you know, going to university or something like that, um, you know, sometimes they might, um, you know, their coping strategies and mechanisms that they've developed from young Um, start to unravel a bit when they're in that unsupportive environment. It can lead to kind of burnout and exhaustion. Sometimes I'm seeing that, seeing uh, some of those patients at that point.
0: Mm -hmm. Really interesting Um, and such a diverse range of people presenting at different points uh, in their life cycle, That it sounds as though often um, those life events are a bit of a trigger uh, for presentation. Um, Sarah S, um, are there any other sort of um, trends or observations that you've made?
1: I think it's um, quite similar to what Liseon was mentioning in that um, change of life can sometimes precipitate uh, this being noticed. In my kind of way of approaching this question, it's mainly considering uh, the individual's capacity um, and the demands that are placed on them. So uh, neurotypical brain um, doesn't necessarily have a widely varying capacity uh, as far as this kind of stuff uh, in the same way that a neurodivergent brain does. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, things like sleep and um, other illnesses and that sort of thing everyone shares. Uh, But as far as the neurodivergent brain, you can find that um, there are points in time where you can have an excess of demand placed on your ability to do all your day-to-day stuff. Um, so I think that um, your examples were perfect. The other thing that I can think of is that um, something that's unique to women and um, fat people who also have the influence of estrogen throughout the course of the month. Uh, we know that estrogen uh, plays a key role in dopamine function um, and it's uh, another key time that I have seen a lot of uh, people kind of first notice real issues have been around um, puberty, pregnancy, mm. menopause and menopause, all these times where there's wide fluctuation and variation in the hormone, female hormone levels um, in their systems that kind of unveil that um, for them. So those would be the areas that really come to mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Uh, so... We've talked a bit about why people might present. Um, you know, for the majority of us here today, we're not um, responsible for giving formal diagnoses, uh, but um, I think we often are the ones who are talking to people after they've received a diagnosis. Uh, and so I think it's it's interesting um, to think through um, what that support might look like and what the varying um, types of responses can be. Uh, Sarah B, what have you observed? Um, in people who have received diagnosis of mm.
2: yeah so I work a lot with adults and um, a really common response I uh, see in people is enormous grief enormous grief that it wasn't picked up earlier when they were a child or an adolescent or even a young adult but it wasn't that it wasn't picked up and um, many will talk about uh yeah a life that's Contained a lot of challenges and a lot of struggles because of that, because things haven't come as easily in some areas um, as they have to others. And that might be with work or with study or with um, organisation or whatever it might be. So, there can be a lot of grief about what life could have been like, and what um, if they had had the right supports, the right structures, um, the right understanding of themselves too. Um, so grief is a really common response, and I think that's something as um, yeah, clinicians we need to really attend to and 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 provide space for too. Um, in some people, there's a combination of grief and relief, so there can be a little bit of both going on, and uh, uh, the relief for a lot of people can be, wow, my goodness, so much makes sense now. I finally have a framework for understanding myself and my experiences, and also I can have a bit more compassion for myself and more love for myself around that because things make sense, and I have, you know, um, yeah, uh, uh, some reference points for that, so I think there can be enormous relief for people and enormous new understanding of self. Um, so they would be the kind of the most common responses I see. The other big thing I think is it can really um ADHD can really disrupt a person's sense of self. So they might have had a lot of negative feedback for perhaps being late or handing in assignments at the very last minute, or um, or you know not being on top of admin at work or whatever it might be. Um, that um, yeah can really affect sense of self and affect um, affect a person's love for themselves too. So often it is working through how that's impacted them and what that's you know um yeah and and giving people space to talk to that and um, process that um a lot of people too will recognize that they do have a lot of sensitivity to rejection too as as part of that life process they've um they've been through and often too there can there, there is a higher incidence of trauma um in Um, ADHD adults too. So I think um, just being aware of that um, and yeah, and that might be through things that have been said or happened or done. um, Yeah, potentially traumatic experiences um, tend to be be higher. I think a really important part of our work is education and helping um, people understand their own beautiful brains, um, the great strengths that are, are there and they're different for each person. And also, how the challenges um, have perhaps affected them and why some things are so much harder and why some things, like Sarah was saying, are so much harder on some days and easier on other days. Just all that understanding can just help with that um, acceptance of self, um, compassion for self and love for self again, too. Hmm. I think environmental adjustments are really important, too, because um, really, it's really about fit. Um, Our world is largely set up for neurotypical people, workplaces, schools, universities. So, adjusting environments and finding environments that are really good fits can be good, and also making adjustments to actions um, um, can make for better outcomes for people. And then the other really important thing I think is – Yeah, really encouraging uh, self-care and rest and recognition of, I suppose, um, people's pacing and what's going to work for them and um, giving self-time out too when it's needed, when those demands um, are perhaps beyond capacity at that point in time. So, yeah, recognising rhythms and um, also recognising what's actually in life at the moment and what's actually feasible and possible too.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, Sarah. I think that that's a really good foundation um, as we um, move on with the webinar. So I guess many of us in clinical practice will be uh, familiar with, it's not that common that we'd see somebody with just ADHD, uh, but there might be other Uh, mental health challenges they're experiencing. And I think in terms of the causality and uh, why that's the case, it's very difficult to tease out. But um, Sarah B, could you um, just talk us through um, those common concurrent conditions that we tend to see clinically?
2: Absolutely. So um, yeah, really important for us as clinicians to keep an eye out for coexisting conditions that may be present um, because 65% of people will have a another um, mental health condition and or physical um, condition as well. So that's really important just to keep an eye out for and be tuning in and listening to. We know um, uh, mood concerns are really high. So depending on the research we look at for depression between 18 and 53%, for bipolar 9 to 21%. So that's something just to keep an eye out for. Um, And anxiety is at 50%. So it's higher than the general population in adults. We also know substance use conditions are twice as common as the general population um, at 15%. So that can sometimes be a way of coping, a way of helping people get to sleep, a way of um, coping when overwhelm gets really, really high and demands are um, really, high. So um, yeah, and also a form of stimulation too and, and dopamine seeking too. So um, yeah, and also personality condi- conditions, um, uh, yeah, probably at around higher than 50% to the research shows. Mm. So that That's differential cool. diagnosis is important, as well as looking at um, co-occurring
0: conditions. Fantastic, thanks, Sarah. So now we're going to be talking about some specific strategies to really assist people with those those issues with executive function, as well as uh, regulation. And uh, and and just to say that you know. Some of these won't work. Um, many of them won't work for e- everybody. Um, and so it's really just about um, taking an individualized approach. Um, people often have a sense already about whether something's going to work or not, but just being prepared to experiment a little bit uh, uh-huh. and then over time, come up with a repository of of strategies that might help that individual. Um, so Sarah B, can you talk us through what particular strategies you think can be helpful for organization and memory? Yep, great.
2: So I really agree with that point. It is about listening to experience and tailoring and collaborating and thinking about what's going to. Um, yeah, asking that person what's likely to be helpful them, what they've tried. Um, but Russell Barkley talks about um, ADHD. In terms of executive functioning, not being about the what and the why, but being about the how and the when, the execution of things. And I really like, I often share that with people um, because I think that's, you know, they know exactly what they want to do. They know why they want to do it. The how and the when can be um, more challenging. So I'll talk to people about routine, and often I get a lot of resistance even at that word. But I often, um, you know, I say it doesn't have to look like, you know, at 8 a.m., I do this, but it might be once a day, I, you know, do this and thinking about the things that are important in life and the things that perhaps need to happen a little bit more regularly or they'd like to happen a bit more regularly Um, and looking at, yeah, what kind of starting to assemble some um, routine if possible Um, and if wanted too. sometimes getting some habits going as well um, and some automatic things happening. So, it might be, yeah, um, brushing teeth in the shower, for example. So, getting two things happening at once that um, can be helpful, just getting um, habits going. I think in terms of um, the home, the desk, the workplace, that idea of a place for everything and everything in its place can really help and minimising distraction and um, any clutter can be really helpful um, because distraction can be uh, so prevalent at different times. Um, And even things like having drawers that are a third full all the time. So, when clean washing goes in, they're not crammed at the top and it's not unattractive to have to try and stuff and cram things in so all of those little things depending on what the person's presenting you know uh, concerns are can be helpful I love words and I love acronyms. Not everyone does, but sometimes for memory stuff, uh, acronyms can be amazing before leaving homework or study. So you remember things. So um, there's a basketballer um, I know with ADHD. And so um, talking about ball, bottles, ball, bottle, boots, bucks, so that everything is remembered when walking out the door. Um, timers can be incredibly helpful um, when uh, work needs to be done. And, but having fun breaks, fun-timed breaks that have rewards in between. Um, that might Rewards might be rest time, it might be doing some dancing, it might be something that gives some dopamine, um, but that can also be really helpful as well. But the breaks are really essential. Body doubling, um, I get lots of people responding to really well. So, this is the idea of meeting online or meeting in person with someone who's also got some things they want to do in that next 45 minutes or hour block. Um, agreeing what both parties want to do, um, committing to that and then just having some company um, to do that, so it's not an alone task. It's not as boring. So there's some co-regulation. There's also some lovely accountability that just occurs naturally. Um, making things into games can be really good too. Um, ADHD is often really good at racing against the clock, and the best the best work comes out then. So you know, giving um, a certain amount of time to do something and seeing how much of that can be done in that time can be helpful. Um, some uh, adults with ADHD will say no to diaries, I, I don't like them, but I think they can, they can have a place. Um, paper diaries, I find a lot of people respond well to, but also um, people with diaries on huge whiteboards can be helpful and this can really externalise that executive functioning and also can help people map, especially with colour, what's going on in the month and just help manage burnout a little bit too by seeing that big picture of what's happening. Um, rather than loved ones or colleagues um, saying what to do and giving the reminder, question prompts can be really, really helpful. Like, have you got, have you thought about what else do you need? Um, Can be, yeah, really good. And then I guess thinking about the use of alarms, like maybe if, um, I don't know, a a pet's outside, putting the oven timer on to remember to to bring the pet in, if that's, you know, something. Um, And also thinking about, better alert times. Often people will say to me, look, I am really good around 11 o'clock and four o'clock I'm cactus. And so working with that and using that and um, having um, scheduling meetings around those um, Mm. alert times and talking to managers around that too, like that's going to be my best time. If you want the best out of me, I'll be fantastic at 11 and four o'clock less likely to be so fantastic. (laughs) So Mm. just all that kind of thing can be really helpful and it's tailoring it
0: with the person. So it's that self-knowledge and then actually yeah. building your life to, to make the most of it, yeah. Um, you've also talked, Sarah B, about um, the ADHD brain um, loving stimulation or or, or needing stimulation. Yeah. Um, so how are some ways that we can actually use that, um, mm. perhaps give more stimulation yeah. um, in order to help that person's brain work?
2: Yeah yeah so um it that the um, the ADHD brain needs a lot more dopamine and it likes shiny new things it likes variety it likes uh, new um, being rewarded as well so um that those stimulation needs are really real and they um and when they're met a person's got to function much better too and um, have better outcomes as well so for some people this is medication and some people choose to have this and respond well to it it's not for everyone um, and not everyone responds well either. Um, For some people, it's doing more than one task at once. So, I have lots of people who can do a job and if they're knitting at the same time or if they're crocheting or if they're doing something like playing with a fidget toy or doing something with their feet, that can just enhance their ability to do that task um, because there's a bit more going on. There's a bit more variety and a bit more exciting. Um, Yeah, Physical activity, I find lots of people respond really, really well to, whether that's going for a run or dancing or um, yeah, walking the dog, whatever it is that um, is attractive and appealing, but having some um, release through that and, and dopamine through that too. Um, yeah, and absolutely movement while doing an activity. So it might be walking while there are meetings because meetings can be very boring anyway for anyone to sit through. <laughs> but um, ADHD, adult can find that even more boring. <laughs> so... Um, Yeah, So lots of what I would call dopamine activities
0: um, can really, really be helpful. So what are some of the um, helpful strategies when it comes to sleep and ADHD, Sarah B? Mm,
2: So I think, um, yeah, sleep issues are really, really common. Um, And sometimes that can be uh, in part because people might feel they haven't got to do all the stuff they wanted to get done during the day. So it's um, the sense of getting some accomplishment during the evening. Sometimes it can be just not having an awareness of time at night. And so, the the night just goes away and they might go um, down some rabbit holes with some fascinating interests. Um, Yeah. And also, I think a lot of people will talk to me about that transition from being on to going to sleep being really, really hard too. So, it's really about listening and working out what that person's current nighttime kind of period looks like, and then working with them to tailor a sleep routine that might work a bit better. Um, And that can take lots of time, lots of tweaking, and it's so much easier said than done because sleep can be a really big, hard issue for people. Um, But coming up with some kinds of rituals around bed and some kind of habits that are appealing and that make it easier. And again, it's a little bit different for every person. Um, For some people having some um, dopamine activity before... Before bed it might be doing some really fast dancing and getting all the energy out for some people it might be um, some stimulant medication um, before bed which might sound counterintuitive but that can actually give the brain the, um what it needs so that it can rest and, and settle and um, and sleep
0: i hope you've enjoyed this podcast on living well with adhd A big thank you to Sarah Barker, Wee Sian Woon and Sarah Sibson for sharing your depth of expertise and experience with us. All the resources and services that we discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website in the Health Professional Resource and Education Hub under Webinar 64. Thank you so much for listening today. Until next time. Bye.